huge regulation such as this is an indication of trends generally in global regulation. So I think this is the kind of writing on the wall in terms of transparency of costs and charges for investors and also financial advisors acting in the best interests of their end clients. Welcome to Better Conversations, Better Outcomes, presented by BMO Global Asset Management. I'm Ben Jones. And I'm Emily Larson. In each episode, we'll explore topics relevant to today's trusted financial advisors, interviewing experts and investigating the world of wealth advising from every angle. We'll also provide you with actionable ideas designed to improve outcomes for advisors and their clients. To access the resources we discussed in today's show, or just to learn more about our guests, visit bmogam.com forward slash better conversations. Again, that's bmogam.com forward slash better conversations. Thanks for joining us. Before we get started, one quick request. If you have enjoyed the show and found them of value, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It would really mean a lot to us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Global Asset Management, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Today, we're revisiting the topic of global regulation. Oh yes, very exciting. Now, you might remember that last year we covered the U.S. conflict of interest rules from the Department of Labor, and then we headed up north to discuss Canada's CRM2 rules. Today, we travel across the pond to the U.K. and Europe. And while these regulations that we're discussing are specific to EU financial markets, this set of rules has had global implications. So if you're in the U.S. and Canada, don't tune out just yet. Today we're talking about MIFID II, the European regulation and directive that significantly changes how advisors do business in Europe and affects most markets around the world. We're going to get into the details on today's show and discuss how implementation is going, the implications for EU advisors, and the impact on North American advisors as well. Our guest today is the knowledgeable Ben Apfel. He's the head of legal for BMOGAM EMEA, that's Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with Ben at BMOGAM's London offices to discuss this topic. My name is uh, Ben Apfel, and I'm head of legal at BMO Global Asset Management for the EMEA regions, which is obviously part of the Bank of Montreal. You know, when you're out with friends and family, you know, out at dinner and they say, what do you do? How do you describe your role to them? Well, I say I'm an in-house lawyer and I like to view myself as a trusted advisor to my business partners. So I'm not just there to provide effective challenge. I'm there to help them achieve what we call in um, the bank responsible growth. Fantastic. Where are we today? Where are we recording? We are recording in what is called the European Room in Exchange House, the headquarters of BMO Global Asset Management in EMEA. And we're in London, England on a beautiful, cloudy, rainy day, right? That's exactly what you would expect. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Ben, we're here to talk about something that's been quite impactful to, I'm sure, your life and the EMEA business and even just globally uh, over the last uh, year or so in particular intensity, but for quite some time. So we're talking about MIFID II. 
2. So before we kind of dive into some of the particulars of MIFID 2, this is a big deal. It affects most markets around the globe and asset managers. So we're all exporting regulation yes, now. Yes, that's, that's a theme. <laughs> and, you know, we did an episode on the Department of Labor rule in the U.S. We did one on CRM2 in Canada. And so it's very appropriate yeah. that we cover MIFID 2. So what does MIFID 2 stand for? So, um, first of all, MIFID stands for the Market in Financial Instruments Directive. Pretty bland title. And the two stands for, well, simply because it's like Mark II. And there was a Mark I. There was a Mark I in 2007. Uh, Since then, um, it's been the cornerstone of EU regulation of both investment business firms and also financial markets. So what it's doing... This goes for the original MIFID and the MIFID 2 enhanced version is it's looking at how investment services uh, provide firms in a range of areas from best execution to outsourcing to inducement, both on the sell and the buy side. And it's also looking at and regulating the operation of stock exchanges and trading venues. So MIFID, the original MIFID comes out in 2007. Was it by design that there was a phase two or did they just get to updating it and they decided we need to issue a second mark? No, so it was it was by design because, I mean, regulations meant to be living and keep up with changes in the marketplace. And what the European Commission, because this is a piece of European regulation that applies to members of the European Union, which Britain still is today, what they were looking at were two factors, that uh, huge factors of change that needed addressing in terms of tighter regulation. Firstly, um, the financial crisis from 2008, which exposed weaknesses in the functioning and transparency of markets and therefore investor protection. And secondly, also products becoming increasingly more uh, complex and houses offering an increasingly wider range and bewildering range of products uh, and investors becoming more active in their use of those products. So I think the commission felt there was a need to also have greater regulation of how products are pushed out there and the governance around them. So those are kind of the two big um, uh, themes. This has been going for like maybe four years in terms of, if not more, in terms of um, development. And it's been uh, delayed once and or it's twice. Been, it, it was delayed once um, because of all of the technology implementation. So originally it was meant to come into force um, on the 3rd of January 2017, and then it was delayed. And if you look at the sheer size of the thing, because I've got some stats here that yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I got together. So MIFID 2, which is the uh, which consists in fact of two pieces of legislation. So there's a directive and a regulation. And for those of you who are nerdy, maybe about EU regulation, which is probably nobody listening, a regulation is a piece of legislation that comes into force automatically once it's passed at the European Union level. So there's no need for local member state parliaments to actually bring the law into force. Whereas a directive 
um, is a piece of legislation that needs to be actually implemented into the uh, member states' local law. So there's two things. There's MIFIR, which is the MIFID version, the MIFID version of the regulation directly effective, which is more focused on markets. And then there's MIFID, which is the directive and is more focused probably more on conduct of business. And in terms of stats, the entire thing, 1.7 million paragraphs and 541,000 words. Now, War and Peace is 580,000 words. So you can see the sheer size of this um, of this piece of legislation. And that's before you've got to read all of this stuff. That's before you even get to doing the implementation. That sounds like a great way for me to fall asleep on the plane on the way home is to try <laughs> to read that entire regulation. But, I mean, that, that kind of explains why it's taken so long to, to get you know, the full implementation done. Now, the rule was delayed. It was the official start date was uh, January of, of 2018 here. Yeah. And so... Is that the the full implementation, or is there still work being done on the timetable to to get that in compliance? So, from a European Commission level, so at a European Union level, that's it basically. Um, uh, the third of January was when the regulation came into force. Um, but uh, does that mean it's the end? Absolutely not, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that, as I said before. Um, part of MIFID involves legislation that needs to be implemented locally. And some states, some countries are not as efficient as other countries in implementing legislation. So you have this bizarre situation in, for example, Spain or Portugal, where half of MIFID, the the regulation part, which takes effect directly, is in force. And the other part, the directive, is not enforced because their parliament has failed to pass it yet. Wow. So, so we're still, there's still parliaments that need to do it in some of the member states. The other thing is... And does that put the parties that function in those markets in an awkward situation? Well, yes, because they're kind of having to do a balancing act a bit. And the European Commission are not happy about it. And they've done a bit of naming and shaming of some jurisdictions who've kind of not got their um, um, act together. But this is not an uncommon trend with um, European legislation. The other factor is, is that because of the complexity of implementation... There's a bedding in time. I mean, naturally, it's not like 3rd of January and that was it. Everything was up and running kind of smoothly. I mean, there was a lot up and running, but there's, there's, there's um, a lot. There's a whole IT build and firms are still working through and regulators with the IT build, working through the IT build needed in order to ensure full implementation. Wow. 541,000 words. Let me try and recap with much fewer. After some delays, MIFID II, which stands for Market in Financial Instruments Directive II, came into full effect on January 3rd, 2018, although some local parliaments have yet to pass the directive portion of the legislation. The regulation was partially in response to the 2008 financial crisis. The directive and regulation aims to provide greater transparency for end clients, as well as regulate areas where potential conflicts of interest may occur. At this point, you'll notice there's a theme about conflicts of interest and transparency and regulation around the world. I asked Ben why advisors should care about MIFID II, and here's what he had to say. So 
from the perspective of financial advisors, um, actually, who are regulated in the European Union, they should care about it because basically this has changed in significant ways the way they operate in practice. So to run through a couple of things, first of all, their enhanced competency requirements that they have to uh, be able to demonstrate. So knowledge of um, financial products, how they operate, and how to sell them appropriately to investors. And are those tests that they have to CE tests or things that they have to do on an ongoing basis? Um, No, I think it's up to the firms to determine that people who are client-facing have the necessary knowledge and competency. Although clearly there are qualifications that uh, financial advisors um, uh, can do. And in some jurisdictions such as the UK, uh, in order to be a financial advisor, you do have to have a a qualification. Secondly, there are restrictions on payment of trail fees, which is a huge deal. So just to clarify, uh, trail fee is also known as a, a rebate, is uh, something that a product manufacturer, fund manufacturer, will pay to a distributor of their fund from their own bottom line, from their annual management fee that they receive on the fund, in consideration of the distributor promoting the fund to their underlying investors. And the issue with that from a regulatory perspective is that it creates a conflict of interest because potentially the distributor is not looking at the product that is most suitable for the client and meets um, the target market that they're selling to. They potentially are looking for the product that will pay them the most rebate. And so that has been a long-standing concern. And we've seen in the UK, for example, in 2012, that the um, Financial Conduct Authority introduced the Retail Distribution Review, which banned payment of um, rebates to any type of financial advisor, not just independent financial advisors. This is like a kind of follow-on, and it probably arises uh, uh, in large part due to British influence, before the um, uh, before the Brexit referendum. So what you're seeing now is that if you're a portfolio manager and you're dealing with retail uh, uh, customers or you're an independent financial advisor uh, and you're dealing with retail customers, you're no longer allowed to receive any trail fee. And so has this increased the utilization of fee-based type advice? Well, it's too early to say. But obviously, the only model then that you can utilize if you're an independent financial advisor is being paid directly by the end investor. Um, And that leads to um, the challenge that some investors may say, I'm not willing to pay for an advice service. I'm just going to go and track down uh, whatever investors I think are appropriate. And then you end up with a potential advice gap. That's one of the trends that has come out of RDR. However, let's remember the ban on rebates or trail fees under MIFID II, so outside of the UK, which is gold-plated, or the Netherlands, applies to independent financial advisors. If you're a restricted financial advisor, so in other words, you're not looking at the whole range of market products. You're looking at, say, a platform of products that you've decided, you've selected, or you've wrapped because you're a large private bank, then you can still receive rebates, But the test for receiving those rebates to make sure that there isn't a conflict with the end investor and that it's appropriate for um, the financial advisor to receive the rebate 
is much higher. They have to be able to show that the receipt of the rebate will enhance the quality of services they provide to the end investor. For example, it will enable them to host uh, a greater data set on a, a particular fund manufacturer's products on their website. So that's, that's on that. The other thing that um, is huge is product governance. So product governance, which was already a big deal from an FCA perspective in the UK, those rules have been adopted as part of MIFID II and pushed out across the whole of the European Union. And this is all the, all, a whole set of rules around how you launch and then operate and distribute a product in the best interests of investors and to an appropriate set of investors. So products are not going to the wrong target market. And the rules apply to both fund manufacturers, um, so the people who create and launch funds, and also distributors, uh, so the people offering the funds to end investors. If you're a financial advisor now, right, you have, you have a formal regulatory requirement under MIFID II to make sure that you understand the characteristics of the fund that you're selling so BMO funds, for example, you, you look at the target market that we have identified for that fund. So maybe we say only advise retail investors and you are able, therefore, to sell the product appropriately so to I, the end investor. So I want to make sure I understand that that particular thing means that as a manufacturer, a fund manager, investment firm like us, we would have to define who the product is appropriate for. And then the advisor would also have to make sure they were only selling it or promoting it to that type of client. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Ben. And to facilitate them doing that, there's been an industry-wide um, data template developed called the European MIFID template. Uh, very exciting oh, very name, clever, huh? Which lists out um, the, the appropriate distribution channels, fund characteristics. So now let's look at why advisors who don't practice in Europe should care about MIFID too. If you're a financial advisor in another jurisdiction, why should you care about the impact of MIFID too? I would say there's two points. First of all, practically speaking, if you're buying a product from a European product manufacturer, then they are going to seek to get additional information from you as a distributor. In particular, they will request whether um, you have sold the fund in line with its identified target market or whether you've had sales outside. And they will also want to receive details of investor complaints. And so on this point, like, so if you're an advisor sitting in Miami and you do a, a fair bit of offshore business in USITs, yeah. The manufacturer of that particular use it might ask you for some more details than they have in the past. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. The other reason why you should care is because often a huge regulation such as this is an indication of um, trends generally in global regulation. So I think this is the kind of writing on the wall in terms of uh, transparency of costs and charges for investors, and also financial advisors acting in the best interests of their end clients rather than their um, own pockets. And so what we're seeing, we've seen in other jurisdictions like Australia or the Netherlands, a complete ban on rebates. 
In Canada, we've had CRM2, which has um, resulted in enhanced disclosure of costs and charges. And in the US, as you mentioned, we've had the Department of Labor fiduciary rule, and which, which requires financial advisors, they have a specific duty to undertake certain activities to show they're acting in the best interest of end investors. And obviously, that's generating a whole controversy. That controversy, in a way, mirrors almost the uh, controversy that you see around regulation, say, in the UK, like the Retail Distribution Review, which is, are we over-regulating financial advisors so much that uh, either you see a drop-off in the number of people who are prepared to be financial advisors, or you see a drop in um, investors willing to seek advice because they find the process so cumbersome? We're all exporting regulation in today's globalized society, so it may be educational to listen to our episodes on the CRM2 regulation in Canada and the U.S. Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. Those episodes are 32 and 24, respectively, and we'll have links to them at bmogam.com forward slash better conversations. As with the regulations in the U.S. and Canada, the chief concern among many in the financial industry is that regulations such as MIFID II have gone too far, creating big barriers to entry and increasing the cost burden on smaller firms, causing them to either close or merge into larger ones. So let's explore the specific critiques and some of the unintended consequences of MIFID II. With respect to what you've seen so far, it's it's early times. We're we're recording this. The law has kind of been uh, officially in place for a little over a month. Are you seeing any unintended consequences for financial advisors in the EU? I think it's too um, I think it's too early to say. Except that what you are seeing is is that fund platforms, if they haven't received this um, European MIFID template with all of the necessary data, then they are basically um, stopping the funds from being on a platform. So you have all of the asset management houses trying to make sure that the templates are all developed, but that the IT build works to make sure that the data flows to the platforms or distributors so that they can then fulfill their own regulatory um, obligations. And, you know, I, I've read some of the critics of MIFID II and, and certainly in the U.S., the DOL rule. Some of the critics say that it increases the barriers to entry to the point where new firms don't start up. There's not new new advisor recruitment. And that also uh, the big firms, because they have scale, are able to comply really easily. And a lot of these small firms are, have a, 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 an unwieldy burden that's placed upon them and, and maybe it limits competition. Where do you come out on this? So on the IFA side, yes, you, I mean, you saw this with RDR in the UK. You saw uh, lots of smaller advisors saying, it's all too difficult. I'm not going to basically continue acting as a financial advisor uh, anymore. And I suspect what you might see, and I don't have a crystal ball, but you might see the same trend with independent financial advisors in Europe and therefore greater drift towards a restricted advisor model in Europe. So investors being able to go to private banks who offer a more limited range of uh, products that they've selected rather than whole of market. One of the topics within MIFID II that has received the most attention and press outside of Europe is how MIFID II impacts research. Ben Apfel explains the new options. With respect to um, research, what you've seen is enhanced rules on inducements generally in respect of um, rebates. And as an extension of that, what we have seen is 
a um, move to what people call unbundling research from execution costs. So in the pre-MIFID two days, when you did a trade, you potentially were paying partly for an execution cost and partly through what people called soft dollar or a commission sharing arrangement um, for research that you would get from the sell side house that you're doing the trade with. And regulators have increasingly thought that creates a conflict of interest because effectively you're, you're using investors' money to just pay for research that you may not even look at from a quality perspective and just consume willy-nilly. And again, that's not fair. It's not providing value for money for investors. It's only serving to benefit the asset manager and also potentially the sell side in terms of um, their execution costs being linked to um, research. What we have seen under MIFID 2 is a ban on what were commission sharing arrangements. So a ban on doing a completely aggregated trade. And there are only two routes now to uh, paying for research from the sell side. One is paying from your own bottom line. So the asset manager funding the cost of research and entering into separate research provider agreements with the sell side you know, standalone contracts and then executing on an execution only basis in terms of equities. On the fixed income side, this is not really directly relevant because you have spreads where the cost of trading is made up of a number of factors and research may be one of them. But on the equity side, what you're seeing is trading on an execution only basis and paying for research separately. The other method is what's called a research payment account which is where you pass the cost to the end uh, client. So what you have there is a separate standalone account set up with a third-party provider. And when you do a trade, for example, you can say, I want this portion of the trade, um, Goldman Sachs, to go into the research payment account. And then you direct the, at the end of each quarter, you direct how the monies in the research payment account should be paid to different um, third-party research providers. And the rules are very prescriptive in terms of how you do that, the disclosure you provide to clients, um, getting their consent. And what you have seen overwhelmingly in the European marketplace is that asset managers have gone for paying for research from their own bottom line. Yeah, so you've got option one, pay for it out of your own bottom line. Option two, create this fairly complex accounting system to disclose this appropriately. And And also pay the third-party research providers and then uh, agree an annual research budget with your end client. And I think people, the, the industry felt time's up on this generally. And so you've just seen a complete move to paying hard for research from asset managers' bottom line. And so given that London's a huge financial hub, I mean, we're sitting right here in the middle of financial district. There are a lot of firms that operate globally that are located here in London, across Europe, in the Americas, and and even in Asia Pacific. Are firms taking kind of a global approach to this or a regional approach? Do you see any commonalities in how they're trying to adapt to MIFID II as a rule? Well, if you're a global firm, you are Um, invariably going to have European uh, clients and they may contract with a European legal entity but if it's US equities it will then get delegated 
uh, uh, back to a portfolio manager in the US. So if you're faced with that scenario uh, and you're a global firm, then the, the European legal entity will have to ensure that equivalent protections are in place um, in the US. So that's not to say you can't have soft dollar um, in the US, but some of the features from the European research payment account regime would, would need to be implemented. For example, greater use of commission sharing arrangements, which mean that you have more transparency as to the separation between execution and um, research costs, having a research budget for um, investment strategies and moving to execution only trading when you've reached that uh, budget's upper limit, assessing the quality of research, making sure that how um, research providers are chosen and the assessment of their quality of research is completely separate from the dealing desk. So you can do it that way. Right. What we've actually seen um, in practice is a range of approaches. So some firms um, have gone execution only across the entire globe. So they have gone, even for my US clients, I'm not going to use soft dollar anymore. I'm going to start, I may start with Europe paying for my bottom line, but I'm going to phase in paying for research um, even for non-European um, clients. And it's now possible as a result of changes um, in SEC regulations, so no action letters for the sell side to accept hard dollars from asset managers. Some firms have gone for um, execution only for uh, European mandates that are delegated then to the US if they're US equities. And some firms have gone for execution only in, in Europe. But then when you delegate to the US, they still allow the firms to use soft dollar as long as the equivalent protections that um, I described before are in place. Wonderful. And over time, do you think that there is uh, one approach that gets settled on? Or do you think that it'll always be kind of one of these two, three, four different types uh, of approaches? I think, when we, I think that there's a fundamental challenge, at least between the US and Europe, which you may have heard about and ended up in these SEC no action letters, which is uh, traditionally investment banks have been prohibited under regulation in the US from accepting hard dollars for uh, research, and they've had to be paid through um, soft dollar. And so you had this potential dilemma between the regulation in the US saying no hard dollar payments and the regulation in Europe going, where it's basically, you've got to pay research providers hard, and either from your bottom line or a research payment account. So that challenge has been resolved through um, SEC no action letters and brokers in the US can now start to receive um, hard dollar payments. With that resolved, I think you're going to see potentially a move, not immediately, but over the next few years, potentially, to research costs being borne from asset managers' bottom line. The other thing is on the sell side, what you're potentially seeing is that smaller independent research providers face a greater challenge in being paid, and that'll have a knock-on effect potentially on smaller company research coverage, which could then have an impact on uh, liquidity. And so we're seeing initiatives uh, for example, by some of the actual exchanges to partner with smaller companies and offer to issue research on their behalf free of charge. So the sell side and buy side relationships are undergoing a transformation in the way that they buy and consume research. And as you can see, one theme during this episode has been how these kind of regulations have a ripple effect through the industry across the entire globe. 
For those of you who are curious, we did ask Ben about how Brexit would play into this scenario, and he thinks that MIFID II will survive in some form post-Brexit for a number of reasons. One reason is that any larger UK firm will have a continental European base and clients that do business in Europe. And another is that there probably won't be an appetite for divergent regulation after Brexit. So the UK likely will keep a similar regulation in place depending on the UK's final trade relationship with the EU. Whatever side of the English Channel you're on, or whatever part of the globe that you're in, Mifid 2 is already making itself felt in our industry. So we hope today you've come away with a better understanding of the rule and the ways in which it will impact the various market participants around the globe. Looking ahead, I asked Ben what he sees into the future for advisors. What does a post-Mifid 2 world feel like from an advisor's perspective? So I would say they're much more in the spotlight in terms of the services they provide to the end investor and acting in their best interests. Secondly, if they're an independent financial advisor, they're worrying, obviously, as to whether um, charging for independent advice is going to lead to a drop in clientele. And they're also grappling with those um, enhanced competency requirements. They also have to give all of this disclosure to their end investors, the advisors, and they may get lots of still bewildered questions as to how does this disclosure help me. But I think ultimately what this will do is force everybody in the, from the manufacturer to the distributor to focus on keeping fund costs down and ensuring that sales are made in an appropriate way in client best interests. And if you were going to kind of summarize our entire conversation today in two sentences or less, what would you say? Here we have, in the form of MIFID II, a laudable piece of regulation that is designed to tackle the evolution of financial markets and investors' sophistication themselves. But the problem, as always, with laudable intentions is the implementation. And the implementation is hugely prescriptive and in some areas not fully thought through. And so you end up with various material unintended consequences. For example, the impact on smaller company liquidity because of the ban on research. In addition, any implementation of regulation of this size has a huge cost for financial services uh, firms as well. Anything else you'd like to uh, share before we depart today? Only thank you very much for um, listening. I know regulation isn't always scintillating, but it has a huge impact. And ultimately, the intention is designed to benefit each and every one of us as end consumers of financial services. Well, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Better Conversations, Better Outcomes. This podcast is presented by BMO Global Asset Management. To learn more about what BMO can do for you, visit us at www.bmogam.com forward slash better conversations. We value listener feedback and would love to hear what you have thought about today's episode. Or if you're willing to share your own experiences or insights related to today's topic, please email us at betterconversations at bmo.com. And of course, the greatest compliment of all is if you tell your friends and coworkers to subscribe to the show. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, the Stitcher app, or your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, I'm Emily Larson. And I'm Ben Jones from all of us at BMO Global Asset Management, hoping you have a productive and wonderful week. 
This show and resources are supported by a talented team of dedicated professionals at BMO, including Pat Bordak, Gail Gibson, Matt Perry, and Derek Devereaux. The show is edited and produced by Jonah Guile Neufeld and Annie Fassler of Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Global Asset Management, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results. BMO Asset Management Corp. is the investment advisor to the BMO Fund. BMO Investment Distributors LLC is the distributor. Member FINRA SIPC. BMO Asset Management Corp. and BMO Investment Distributors are affiliated companies. Further information can be found at www.bmo.com.